I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need. And get 10% off with the code, all caps, FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10 to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's going on, all you anti-heroes journeyers out there? This is Doc Askins coming at you another time with one of these Q5 podcasts that... I can't get enough of, and it seems like some of you can't get enough of, where I ask five of my favorite questions to people on planet Earth that I think are super cool. And the person I've got on planet Earth on the podcast with me today is my friend, Dr. Jose Fernandez, who we met for the first time when we were both white belts in uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, choking each other out. And as I Got to spend more time with him. I got to find out how awesome he is. Here's his background. Dr. Fernandez's research focuses on a wide range of risky behavior and mental health topics with a special focus on suicide and substance abuse, including opioid-related healthcare utilization. Dr. Fernandez has over 20 articles appearing in well-respected journals such as the International Economic Review, the Journal of Economic Education, Journal of Business Venturing, Journal of Economic Perspectives, Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, and Health Service Research Journal. He has appeared in over 100 local, regional, and national media interviews, including NPR's Planet Money and The Indicator. Dr. Fernandez is a faculty scholar at the Commonwealth Institute of Kentucky, a member of the Statutory Committee Consensus Forecasting Group for the State of Kentucky, the former president of the American Society of Hispanic Economists, member of the Committee on Status of Minority groups in the economics profession and the chair of the economics department at the University of Louisville. Jose, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast today, my friend. Thanks for having me. It's great seeing you again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a minute. I've been absent from uh, jujitsu for a hot minute because I've been a, a little bit busy, but I'll, I'll show up again here real soon. I'll let you choke me out. First chance I get, you know? Yeah. Well, let's uh, get rocking and rolling here with question number one. What's your story? So. You know, when I hear that question, it's like, how do I sell myself to, to other people, right? And when I think about what my story is, I'm half Cuban, half Puerto Rican. My my father uh, came from Cuba to the United States back in the late 1970s, trying to get away from Castro and everything else. And so I, I was born in Miami. I was raised in New York and New Jersey. I've lived in six different states, eight different towns, gone to 10 different schools, and I tell you all this because that moving around really formed who I was and, and, and how, how I became to be the way I am. Now, my father is an interesting character in all this because he's an Episcopalian priest. 
and that was the reason why we moved around so much. And he um, didn't start his family until the second act of his life. So when I was born, he was 49 years old. All right. So my dad oh my goodness. was always wow. old <laughs> to me. He was always old <laughs> to me when, yeah. when I compared him to other dads that are around. And, and that meant that in my brain, I was kind of running a race, right? You, you want your parents to see your accomplishments and everything else. But I was like, I don't know how much more time I have with this dude. And so it, it really fueled me to be kind of this overachiever in, in lots of different areas. Funny thing is, is that right now, you know, I've done all those things that you mentioned. I have two wonderful kids, a wife, chair of the apartment. I'm still younger right now than he was when, when I was born, right? <laughs> he's, uh, he's 94 years old, living his best life in Florida. So, you know, yes. if anything, the, the, the joke's uh, on all of us. He's found a way to, to live two lives. They say you only have one life to live. Well, he figured out a way to do two. So, Sounds so like that, he's on the third where, one, maybe, if he's retired yeah, down to maybe. Florida. He retired like four times. I was like, I'm not coming to the next one. <laughs> it's over. It's over. I'm not coming to the next one. But th- so that that's how this whole thing started. I, I later went to college over New York City, South Florida. Wanted to be pre-med, like half the people going there, going in. And you start doing your extracurricular activities. You go and volunteer at the hospital. You go to these meetings. And I went to this meeting called the American Medical Student Association meeting. And this is wherein they bring out people from medical schools and doctors of all types and bring them onto the stage and they, they tell them about your life. And I remember I went there one day and this young lady who was all disheveled, looked unhappy, comes across the stage. This day, I don't remember what she said. But all I could think to myself was, I don't want that. I don't want that to be my life. And I left that meeting with this sense of angst because I was like, I'm not going to be a doctor. This is, this is not what I want to do. I ran to my security blanket at the time, which was math. And math people don't talk to other people, which <laughs> really bugged me. And I was lost. So I had to fulfill a social science requirement. And in that, I took economics, and economics was this one place where you got to study people, and you got to marry with math. And I just fell in love. Econ has now always spoken to me. It's always something I want to do, and it's got me to where I am now. So that that's kind of how it all started. Went from there, finished my degree, had a little business in between that, and I went to the University of Virginia, got my PhD. When I finished my PhD, I came over to the University of Louisville, and I've been here since. That's the the quick rundown of, uh, of who I am. <laughs> the quick and dirty version. What was the, the the little business that you ran in between graduating and doing your PhD? Sure. So, so my first job was uh, as a dishwasher, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm not doing that again." <laughs> so I did that as a yeah, as a kid. I had a paper route. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I started looking for different ways to, to hustle money. And, and one of those was tutoring. And then later, I learned how to do salsa dancing, particularly a, one type called casino salsa, which is kind of like Cuban square dancing. You, you dance in a set of partners, and you pass partners off. And so we ran a business uh, teaching casino salsa in Tampa, Florida for uh, a couple of years. 
I got hired by the city a bunch of times to like go into parades and do all types of stuff. I had a, a standard club I got to do the openings to. You get to go to concerts for free. It was, it was great. It was a great thing. What I didn't understand at the time, though, was good business practices. Uh, so okay. I <laughs> forgot to put a non-compete clause. I'm sure you've seen some of these before. A non-compete clause inside of the contract saying that my students couldn't compete against me. And so this uh, young know. lady... Yeah, this young lady who uh, graduated from the College of Business at the time, she was a smart cookie, and she hired an entire graduating class of mine and made them all instructors. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, Pulled the carpet I, right out from under you, huh? Exactly. And, and now at this time, I was already thinking about leaving Tampa and trying to go off to do graduate school, but it just all coincided and probably within two months she started putting me out of business, and she's still going to this day. She's got multiple dance studios in Tampa. So <laughs> she took over Tampa. Exactly. Yeah. So, so my failure is to someone else's success story. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, uh, you didn't hand the ball off. You had it stripped away from you and taken <laughs> yeah. to the other end zone. But uh, maybe that opened the door to go get that PhD in Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm much better off now. Much better off now. Uh, yeah. You know, you dodge the bullet of going to medical school and becoming a medical doctor there, but you've got some up close and personal look at how medical school might run. Uh, is that correct? With your yeah, family so I was like, there? did I? Did I? Because so what, what I haven't said is that my wife, she is a doctor. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> right? my wife, she's the uh, residency director for family medicine here at UofL. And I met her while she was in medical school. So I still had to like deal with it. I <laughs> gariously uh, <laughs> didn't right? dodge that bullet quite as thoroughly as you'd hope to yeah. there, Neo. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have to take the exams or, or, uh, or go to class, but other than that, the stress was still there. You know, you have to go through med school, you have to go through the match, you have to go through residency. <laughs> yeah. I lived, Vicariously, I lived you suffered through medical school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, from what I can tell, just, you know, following along, being friends on social media, she's pretty legendary in the, you know, Louisville medical community here. She's a pretty awesome lady. I don't know her personally, but I imagine you have a pretty high opinion of her. <laughs> she is. I mean, I mean, I don't have a banner up in downtown, but she does for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's loses Louisville, right? <laughs> Exactly. So it's, it's it's a different story. She, she's very shy about that. I'm the extrovert. She's the introvert. So I make her friends go buy the banner and take like a selfie picture with it. <laughs> <laughs> Just give her her own hashtag and let everybody run loose with it. Nice. Exactly. That's nice. Yeah. Well, cool. Anything else about your story? Like you kind of wound things down there. You got your PhD at, in Virginia. You've been, you know, the, in the economics department at U of L for how long now? I've been here for 16 years now. The other things that are, are part of my story, and, and these will probably come up later on as we, we go through these questions. When we moved to Louisville, we had a couple of surprises along the way. The the first surprise was that we were we were pregnant again. And you know, I didn't know that when I bought my first house that that I would need that extra room. But at the same time, we received the diagnosis that my eldest son is autistic. And, and you have to understand that at that time, so this is 2007, at that time, if you were looking at 
autism, it was still considered this very rare disease, or no, I shouldn't say disease, this very rare disorder. To give you an example, when my wife had a rotation, in the psychiatric rotation, there was an autistic patient there. And the attending on staff was super excited because he's like, oh, here's someone, I want you to meet this person, I want you to talk to them, pay attention to these things. And, you know, this might be the only person, only autistic person you see in your career. That, that, that's what was said to her at that time, right? Fast forward today, we're now at uh, 1 in 58, depending on the gender, if it's boys, it's, it's uh, almost 2% at this point. It's, it's a very different story. And so we come to Louisville, we, we get that diagnosis and, and no one's ready yet, right? You, you have these pediatricians who are, are just a chapter ahead of you in the book in the sense you have these psychologists who are just ahead of you. You have these speech pathologists. I remember specifically going to one of the appointments and they're reporting different things to you. And one of the things she said was like, well, there are these values, but you know, those values are not important. Be like, no, those values are extremely important because if those values didn't cross a certain level, we wouldn't be here talking to one another. (laughs) So his experience, even now, you know, still profoundly affected the way I view the world. When you normally think about a family and two kids, or a lot of times parents are just concerned that they can raise two well-functioning adults that can go and and do well for themselves. I now think about I have to save for three people going to the future, right? That I'm always going to have him, and it's an additional thing that you have on you at all times, and so. So that, that, that was a, a pretty big thing and it's driven a, a lot of my decisions since then. Yeah, that's absolutely massive. I, you know, I appreciate you being willing to open up around some of those sorts of things. I didn't, I didn't know that about your family until just now. I know it takes a village for sure to kind of come around a family system that has a person with autism spectrum disorder in there. I know that my supervising physician in Lexington is an autism specialist, Dr. Kristen Dawson. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm learning. She's, you know, she's very good at that with that patient population. So that's super interesting to hear just kind of your perspective and your perspective too, as an economist there that you're kind of planning ahead for the future and you've got, you know, seven habits of highly effective people. You want to begin with the end in mind and now you got to begin with a different end in mind than maybe you had planned whenever you got that news. But I appreciate, you know, you telling us a bit about what that's been like. Would you, would you be willing to explore that a little bit more? Like tell us a bit about what that's been like since then? Yeah. Yeah. So some of the things that people may not realize, if you have a child with special needs, you of course are trying to get them services and, and things of that nature, but there, there's this constant battle that, that you're dealing with, right? One is any investment you make today in your child is money you're taking away from their future, right? And, and that, that might not seem obvious at, at first, but anytime you're spending dollars now, that's money you could have put away in IRA or something for your kid when you're no longer around. So you're, you're making that trade-off all the time and you're doing that trade-off asking yourself, will this treatment will this intervention make them a more successful adult 
thus they won't need that money back then. Or am I, am I just throwing money away? Right? You, you, yeah, you yeah. have to deal with that. There's that opportunity cost that none of us get taught to think in terms of, right? Right. So, so that, that's one of the things. Second thing that you don't hear too much about is just because you get a diagnosis from your medical physician doesn't mean that the school system views it the same way. So you have to go through this other wormhole through the school system in order to get services. And that and that's an entire thing all by itself. So IEPs is, is what they're called. And you, you have to defend yourself against them. Then the government gets involved because you potentially have someone who can qualify for disabilities, which will be a uh, person receiving some services from the government. And now you have them in the, in your business asking you questions and whether or not if they were to receive these services, would they uh, have to be taken away from you? Would they have to be home somewhere? So, you know, you're, you're, you're feeling like you're also getting attacked personally when these things are, are going on and, and, you know, they're just trying to protect the child, but it's a, it's a very different environment than when you have everything in house with a, a typical child. So, so, you know, anyway, we, we, we have that going on. He gets the diagnosis. And at the same time, I'm telling you that my youngest son is being born. Now, my youngest son decided that he wanted to uh, come into the world earlier than he was fully baked. <clears throat> so oh, no. he, he, uh, so you visited decided, Cosair? Yeah, he spent two weeks at uh, Cosair. And when you go into there, you, uh, you know, you, you go into this room and all the babies are in these little boxes and you're, you're happy that there is this type of medicine that, that is available to, to deal with the situation. And so at first I'm panicking. And then after being in the room for a while, I started feeling guilty and the guilt is not coming from anything I did or anything like that. But I noticed that he was the big kid in the room. Right. Like he was only there for two weeks. There are other people there that have been a lot longer than I have. Yeah. So he, he made it through that first week just fine. Then he went to the step down and, and, and he was finally able to come home. But when I tell you the two stories of the two births, you'd guess that he was the one that would have all the issues. Instead, he's fine. He's the tallest one sure. out of the four of us. <laughs> he's, a, he's an artist. It's a, it's, it's a totally different story. <laughs> Awesome. My wife and I have two NICU graduates from Cosair as well. They were relatively short stays for both of them, fortunately for us. But we, you know, sat in the rooms there with folks who'd been there for, you know, months at a time. And, you know, the, uh, you know, all the love and all the support in the world to the Cosair Children's Hospital here in Louisville. They're amazing people, you know, did some awesome work for my kids. And, you know, like we've gone a couple of times to the the zoo, the UofL zoo has a NICU graduates like reunion thing. We've gone to some of those. It's awesome to just kind of see all the people there with just huge hearts doing the medicine downtown. Yeah. Amazing anyway, work. just wanted to give them a shout out. Yeah. Man, what a story. I feel like we could talk just about your story for the rest of the time, but I'm going to keep things rolling. I appreciate the degree to which you opened up about some of that stuff. And maybe we'll bring you back around and we'll do one of those like nine hour long Joe Rogan podcasts and we can just talk about whatever the hell we want or something later on. <laughs> I don't know who listens to those things for that long, but uh, yeah, they're, they're having fun. So why couldn't we, right? So first questions about what's your story and about your past and about memory. And then the second question is to kind of transition to the future and to your imagination and how you see things going. So what are your intentions going forward? 
So my intentions going forward, I mean, I'm someone who always has these little short-run goals that I'm trying to hit. Go to college, get a PhD, get tenure. Now I'm going up for a full professor, assuming I get it. I'll be the first full Hispanic full professor at the College of Business at the University of Louisville. Test them for Purple Belt a week from today. See how that goes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you slingshotted way past me. Damn it. All right. <laughs> yeah. Great. So Got some catching so, up to do. Nice. Yeah. No, but you, you, you'll be fine. You'll, you'll get there. So th- th- those are like these, these short run things. But long term, I've taken up spaces where most people don't look like me. And piece of me has to remind myself of that, that, you know, I'm not just representing myself, I'm representing another group. So give you an idea. Hispanics are the largest ethnic minority inside of the United States, roughly around 20% of the population, make about 17% of undergraduate students, 9% of graduate students, only 6% of all faculty, and only 3% of those become full professors. So I have to be present, right? I have to show people that that I'm here and I have to take up spaces that aren't normally what people like me look like (laughs) going into. So that's something that is ever present in in my mind. It's part of the reason why I do the things I do in in economics and and I want to continue doing those those things. That's a bit of the professional side. On, On the research side, I love chasing questions that are are what I call taboo economics. I love chasing questions where people want to know the answer to this question, but they don't want to ask the question, right? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Freakonomics Uh, sort of stuff, yeah? Yeah, so so that's why I work in in a lot of these weird little areas. Right now, I've been working on this, this thing about who measures a suicide, who measures a homicide, who measures those things. A lot of people assume, oh, some doctor comes by and says, this is this and, and that's that, right? Uh, no, that, that's actually not the case. For a grand majority of deaths, it's some guy or a lady who's a coroner. And this coroner doesn't have to have any medical degree. If we're, if we're lucky, the law requires them to get some training. You know how much that training is? Yeah. 40 hours. Do you do you think your education is equal to forty hours? Um, Not close. All right, yeah, so they, I they wish. have to do about forty yeah. hours, and they get to determine what's a homicide, what's an accidental death, what's a suicide. What I've been studying is figuring out how many how many suicides have they missed, how many have they just kind of pushed over to the side, and it's it's not a insignificant amount. It's a it's about 1,200 deaths a year that are that should have been classified as suicides, but instead we have these individuals who are doing it anyway. The stats around suicide in the veteran population, they've suggested that the government's reporting number might have been off by about 50% that they were saying, you know, there were the hashtags going around of the, you know, hashtag 22 a day or people were doing 22 pushups on social media to raise awareness or some of that stuff. Turns out you should have been doing twice as many pushups because it's more like 44 a day veterans have been doing 
poorly in that regard. And the reporting has been, as as you mentioned, thoroughly underreported. The recent episode I had a while back with Wiz Buckley, he brought some attention to some of those stats that, uh, you know, some major colleges have taken a look. It was, as I understand, it, it was actually COVID death reporting that started to bring this into the public consciousness awareness that the level of expertise required to, you know, sign a death certificate might need some reevaluation at this point in society because everybody wanted to understand the COVID stats. And then it was like, who decides whether they died of this or that or the other thing? And turns out it doesn't take much to be the decision maker in that regard, like you were saying. Is that pretty accurate summary from your perspective? It's pretty accurate. I mean, like, just to give you an idea, I already give you the education requirements. So you just have to be, you just have to graduate from high school. Only two states require that you haven't committed a felony. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The very progressive states requiring that, those two states. (laughs) Right. And and what might surprise you is that in some of these elections, some of these coroner elections, actual physicians uh, lose to people who who are not. And so oh, uh, it's a popularity it, contest. It, yeah, it, it blows the mind. Uh, I have a colleague who's like, "Oh, if I ever run for office, it's going to be for coroner." <laughs> like, there, there's no competition <laughs> there. That's exactly what yeah. It's an easy job. You just check the blocks, all the authority, none of the responsibility. Yeah, sign me up. I'm next. <laughs> When's the next election? That's ah, too late. All right, all right, yeah. maybe next year. <laughs> so that's one of the areas I've been looking at. I've been looking at uses of medical marijuana and, and how we can use it in society where it might be a safer option compared to the alternative. So one of those is opioid use and both uh, medical marijuana and opioids are are used for pain, all right? Usually uh, for uh, folks that have either recovering from some type of cancer treatment or has some otherwise unspecified pain. And you find that places that have medical marijuana have a much lower rates of opioid admissions into the emergency room, into inpatient care and things of that nature, because now they have an alternative that still provides them some relief, but doesn't provide all those additional potentially dangerous consequences that come along with it. So, yeah, I'm no I'm no expert on like the medical marijuana situation legislatively or medically, but my understanding of the clinical research that's been done so far, the the only real indication that there'll support from clinical trials is the use of marijuana for nausea and like loss of appetite during chemotherapy is where the best studies have been done suggesting that just like inducing the munchies is medically what <laughs> what we can use this for which just suggests that we've got a lot more research that needs to be done in that regard around the role of medical marijuana in you know the care of of folks it, with chronic pain with chronic diseases a whole bunch of those sorts of things yeah we need to do that research for sure we we definitely do yeah and then, you know, states are, they're, they're still combating, right? There's still these moral and ethical questions associated with it. Not, not everyone's like California or, or Colorado or whatnot. There, there's still a lot of states that you, even when medical marijuana is approved, you, you can't get the flower. You can't get uh, <laughs> the, the actual item. You, you can get some type of uh, substitute, but, but not the plant itself because they, they don't want to appear like they're, they're pro-drugs in those situations. 
Was it just last year that Kentucky passed some legislation around that or two years yeah. ago? I forget exactly the dates. So, so Kentucky just passed the medical marijuana bill. However, there is no way to obtain it. All right. So you, you can't have it delivered. There is currently no registration system there. Your physician could prescribe it, but you have to find your own way of getting it. And Right now, what that would mean is that someone who wants it would have to go to a neighboring state that allows for reciprocity, and then they can purchase it there and bring it back home. They haven't set up the infrastructure yet at all, which is too bad because, I mean, Kentucky would be the Saudi Arabia of hemp if uh, you allowed it to be. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, there's been, uh, you know, the National Guard spent an awful lot of time and money, you know, finding fields and burning them out with the JSO program. I got lots of friends that worked in that program and had a lot of fun fast roping out of helicopters to, you know, burn up marijuana plants out in the middle of, you know, eastern Kentucky. Yeah, maybe that needs reevaluated, too. I don't I don't know anything about any of that stuff. I was never assigned there or anything. But, yeah, it seems like explain the Saudi Arabia analogy. Sure. So. We know Saudi Arabia is one of the largest oil producers. Kentucky happens to have farm ground that would be perfect for, for marijuana or for, for hemp. And there is an old history to it to it as well. So for, for your listeners out there, I want you to Google cornbread mafia. Just, you just go ahead and Google that. Yes. This All is right. such a good story. Yes. You, you need to go down the rabbit hole on the cornbread mafia. Everybody Google that and, and learn some interesting things about Kentucky's history. It's an awesome story. Strategic Navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. The, the cornbread mafia, just to give you the quick rundown, they, they were this, this family operation, we'll say, <laughs> um, that, uh, <laughs> that were the, the middleman uh, between marijuana in the U.S. And, and Canada. So they essentially wrote this like pipeline between Kentucky and Canada and supplying Canada with, with marijuana. And they held on to it for a very long time and quietly, too, when you consider all the other things that are going on around it. You might say, why is that possible? Well, Kentucky has a history of, of you know, doing things to help you uh, relax. So we're, we're a bourbon manufacturing industry. Bourbon wasn't <laughs> yeah. always legal. The bourbon trail, sure. Right? Yeah, so yeah. sometimes that bourbon trail was the white lightning trail. <laughs> People making what they wanted to make, how they have, how sure. to make it. They had yeah. skills and all that. And, and marijuana was another one of those options that was available that you could grow along that same type of track of land. And so this group were collective farmers, we'll say, and they uh, uh, put their items together and they were able to sell them into, uh, for a profitable amount to Canada. <laughs> and they did so uh, yeah. at a high rate. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's that show on FX, uh, Justified, allegedly might have been loosely based on some actual history if you you know double-click on the Cornbread Mafia and then you enjoyed watching Timothy Elephant do his gunslinger routine. That's all set in Harlan County. That's right. That's right. And I got another story on that one. So 
different paper we wrote about is prohibition is, is still alive and well in Kentucky. There, there are counties in Kentucky where you cannot purchase alcohol. Right, dry counties. And I already told you that there's a history of, well, you know, if I can't make, if I can't buy it, who says I can't make it? <laughs> right? Even though the law <laughs> right, says the stills you can't make up it, in the hollers. Right? It turns out that in the in those same dry counties, there were higher rates of methamphetamine labs. So, oh, the uh, okay. if you're already willing wow. to do one illegal activity, what's one more at that point? Right? Sure. And, and again, for for listeners, if you don't know, um, reason meth was so popular in the uh, Midwest was that they had a shortage of other types of drugs they could get. Right? We were far from lots of borders. And so it would take a while to, to get those drugs, other than marijuana, of course. And meth was one of these drugs where all you needed was basically a hardware store, a pharmacy, and you were good to go. There has been enough innovation in the production of meth that people were making meth in like Walmart bathrooms. And they would just go and not even purchase stuff, just grab the things off the shelves, go to the bathroom and cook it right there. <laughs> and so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. People would shave zinc batteries and just yeah. crush some of that stuff up and, and use that. Yeah, like we, I've gotten some like counter drug, you know, briefings along the way in various careers that I've had. And the stuff that people do just to alter their neurochemistry at home is mind boggling. Yeah. Oh, the shake and bake, right? Where they put it all in the two liter bottle and <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so it's these like things toilet were... wine in the in prison or whatever. It's like orange juice and bread. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, whatever you know, like if your life is that miserable, I I can understand to some degree. You know, wanting to change some, whatever you can possibly change to get some relief. People people you know go you know go way out of their way to make that happen for sure. If we could just orient that level of motivation towards like entrepreneurship of some other kind, some like way that gives back more than it takes from you and from your community. I think like the level of what do we call it? Like motivation oriented behavior, you know, like you got an end in mind and you're going to chase that end. If we could just direct a, an, an addict in a different direction and get them addicted to love, joy and peace instead of, you know, meth, opioids and you know, bourbon. I think that would be like the ideal scenario for the future of Kentucky and the world. But I don't know how to connect all of those dots. Maybe you do as an economist. You can help me figure out how to do that. I mean, it clearly shows their capability. They can do chemistry. They can do marketing. Right. right? Yeah. Like, like all kinds of initiative, ingenuity. Yep. So Kentucky is, is, is uh, giving me a lot of uh, fertile ground to, to do studies. <laughs> and, and, and that, that was... <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, that was another one that, that we picked up along the way. I'm going to diverge for just a second, if you'll let me. We had talked before, before I hit record, about maybe you explaining a little bit around what's called a negative income tax. That might be a way that kind of frees up people's lives a little bit. Not exactly the way that we were just talking about, like the way that, uh, you know, redirected entrepreneurship from methamphetamine production in your, uh, you know, your bathroom to, uh, you know, starting a business, but that maybe this might help. When we think about the negative income tax, you have to think about our current system. So in our current system, each one of us will 
file our paperwork April 15th, right? Instead of the government actually sending us a bill, we, we, we have to tell them how much we owe them. And then they double check us. And, <laughs> but uh, the, the way it works is that for your f first uh, $10,000, you don't get taxed on. And then you progressively get taxed on a little bit, a little bit as you move further and further up your income amount. Sometimes people think that you just get taxed based off of your totality of your income. And it's actually not the case. You get based off of uh, different parts of your income as it goes forward. Great. One of the issues that we have in the United States is that we've wanted to help lower income households so much that we sometimes create what's called the poverty trap. And the poverty trap is where if someone can sit down and figure out what type of government services they are qualified for, there is an incentive not to work. And that incentive not to work creates this trap because if you work, you actually will have less income. And I know that sounds odd to some people, but the way that this happens is that if you work, you will no longer qualify for some of those government services, which collectively could mean less household income for you. So people rationally sometimes make the choice and they say, it's better for me not to work and just go ahead and collect these things. The negative income tax is supposed to undo that. So the way that works is that there is some baseline level of income where you still have to submit, right? You still have to file your taxes in order to receive it. But as you increase your income, the amount that's taken in taxes or in some cases given to you wouldn't be as steep. And so you would still actually be earning more as you work more. And you'd keep this negative income tax until we reach some level of income that society has decided is a livable income. And at that point, you would continue on the progressive tax system that we have today. This was one of those ideas that uh, Milton Friedman put forward. And Milton Friedman, and for, for those who don't know, was a very starch libertarian <laughs> at the time. So this sounded like this crazy liberal idea coming from him, but even he saw it as a way to increase productivity because you got more people to go out and work, more people to provide their ideas. Plus, it gave him time to buy things and have leisure and do stuff other than having to constantly worry about where that next paycheck's coming from, potentially uh, have more health issues because of that additional stress and, and other things going on in their life. That this was a way for us to more efficiently still provide the right incentives to work, but still help those individuals that we want to help. Yeah. Uh, the first time I heard about it, it seemed like the math on it just made perfect sense to me. It was this way of threading the needle between, you know, unbridled capitalism where, you know, people are dependent on charitable giving for everything to get out of poverty versus, you know, an authoritarian, you know, socialist sort of structure where everything's dependent on taxation being, you know, redistributed. It's this way of passing through a third way that could help a ton of people and still incentivizes work, right? So that it made sense to me as a complete non-economist sitting on the outside watching a TED talk. I was like, oh, this is genius. I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask, hey, I know a guy. I choked this guy out a week ago. I'm going to ask him <laughs> if this is a good idea or not. And uh, yeah, you know, we, at least you and I were on the same page about that. And that made me feel good. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about it and get that put out there. Yeah. The closest thing we have to it now is the earned income tax credit. 
that it's supposed to act that way, but it only acts that way for households of a certain type. So you have to be a couple, you have to have kids. In that situation, it does act like a negative income tax, but I would like to see it for anyone, right? Especially these days when you hear about, well, men in particular, right? So some of the these lost men who are not progressing in their lives, they're staying at home, they don't have that many job prospects or lonely, right? They, they don't have friends, things of that nature. We need to provide them a, an avenue to, to be successful in life and, and to, to, to move forward. Because if not, there's lots of bad things that happen if you stay in that category too long. Uh, higher rates of crime, higher rates of illicit drug use, higher rates of self-harm. So this actually could have a, a big strong public benefit recruiting into terrorist organizations, you know, like that's the, the, you know, the prime crop for a whole bunch of our enemies to just kind of get inside somebody's head and turn them against their, their neighborhood and against their community. And it'd be a way economically to try to prevent, you know, mass shootings, prevent a whole lot of violence and a whole lot of crime. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The psychology makes sense to me and the math makes sense to me. I'm, you know, decent at both as an amateur, but yeah, I'm glad to hear that uh, you you at least <laughs> see eye to eye with me about that much, right? Well, that's awesome. I appreciate you diverging with me for a moment on, on that subject, but let's bring it back around to the Q5 and ask you this third question. The way that I like to bridge the past and the future in people's stories is to ask them about gratefulness. So what are you grateful for, Jose? I'm very grateful for one, my wife. She's a rock. She's my intellectual equal. She's another firstborn, so we, we tend to see the world in a, in a similar way. But she's different enough from me that she compliments me in those areas that, that I'm weakest. Growing up in the in the Northeast, you often are quick and and to the point. Right there, there's this saying that people from the East Coast are are kind but not nice, and people from the West Coast are nice but not kind. <laughs> and, right? And, and yeah. Folks ask, well, what does that mean? And go like, well, if you have a blowout on I-95 and uh, uh, someone from the West Coast is driving by, they're going like, oh, bless their heart. I hope, you know, they're they're able to get back on the road and, <laughs> and things will be fine. And they continue yeah, on yeah. down the road. Meanwhile, someone from Jersey will pull up behind you, cuss you out for being a terrible driver, yell at you for not knowing how to change your own tire. And while all this is going on, they're changing your tire for you. They're checking everything. They're doing all this. And they're like, now get back on the road, you fucking yeah, yeah. moron. <laughs> and, but, right? They sat down and they helped you out. Exactly. Nice. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she, I was, uh, you know, a little bit too East Coasty. I would go directly to the point on a lot of things, not really thinking of the filter of how that would hit people's feelings <laughs> along nice. the way. Yeah, and yeah. She, she's uh, she's made me uh, think a little bit more about that. Uh, being an economist, I'm, I'm cheap, and so when people come asking for uh, for donations and things of that nature, I go like, "Oh no, you want to talk to the philanthropic arm of the Fernandez family? You need to go speak to my wife." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you get so, out the calculator, and she just gets out the checkbook. That's a good balance, right? Good yeah. balance. And so, so I, I'm very grateful for for my wife. I'm, I'm grateful for my kids. Uh, and this is, I've told you a little bit of the story about them. They're very different from me. So it's, uh, you know, when you, when you, before you're a parent, you sometimes sit there and you hope, oh, teach them how to wrestle and play baseball and do all these great things. And, 
and my kids are very different from me and it's it's allowed me to see the world in, in a different way so my youngest is an artist and i'm you know on the opposite side very technical analytical and he, he lets me see the, the beauty and the art that's in the world and then my uh my eldest my autistic son you know if i could bottle up happiness and sell it i'd be a billionaire because his he every day he wakes up and the world is this awesome place then it, it just it just really is and people when they think about autism they they sometimes think about like rain man or something like that they're all different they're all different they all view the world differently it, it's not a, a one-size-fits-all type of diagnosis. He's a very affectionate person, very proper, very respectful, always wants to help people out. And he, he really embraces uh, what life should be about, right? It should be about sharing your time with the people around you. Now, he may not talk to you while this is going on, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't he doesn't care for you. He probably cares for you quite a bit if he's willing to have you around because uh, you know, he doesn't want to be touched or anything like that. But if he's willing to be in the same room with you, he's caring for you quite quite a bit. So I, yeah, I'm very grateful for for being allowed to to share that experience, to see that experience from from his eyes, as difficult as it could be sometimes. So that uh, I'm very lucky to to have grown up in a household with two parents who put education first, that allowed me to have a bilingual and bicultural life that never never treated me differently. Because this happens with my extended family sometimes. Never treated me differently because I was the American, right? Quote, unquote, in the, in the group. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because my Puerto Rican family would sometimes say, well, you know, you guys from over there. And, and even when they come to visit me here, they'll say, you guys from over there. And I go like, where over are there. you now? <laughs> yeah, you guys yeah, are yeah. the ones from over it's there. It's not a now. geographical <laughs> there. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a cultural there. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they never let me feel like I, I wasn't Cuban or Puerto Rican enough to, to be a part of the group. And so, so that... I have an awesome job. I mean, I, I get to come in every day and talk about ideas and how those ideas affect people. That, I'm, I'm still surprised they paid me to do that, right? Like that, that's just fantastic. I, I have an absolutely great job where I get to connect with bright minds, talk, get to talk about complicated ideas and, and see how we could potentially change the world in, in a better way as we do that. I'm very fortunate for that. The fact that I moved around a lot meant that it was easy for me to make friends, but hard for me to make attachments, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I understand that. So I'm grateful for the different circles of friends that I have, even though they don't necessarily intersect. I have my academic friends who I've yet to convince to roll on the mats with me. <laughs> with the <laughs> Right? So, so then I have this separate group of maniacs that come from all different walks of life that are my jujitsu yeah. friends, right? Which are yeah. are fantastic individuals that that you build a bond with because you have to trust them with your body, right? That's that's something that folks don't don't necessarily understand. It's a, the reason you get so close to these people is that there's a, a level of trust that's required in order to, to do what we do. 
and then I have my my autism family friends. All right, we're we're all going through the same thing together. So I have these uh these circles, and then there's the the general Hispanic community, and it's it's kind of weird that none of those four really kind of overlap, but each one of them bring me something different and and allow me to be who I am in a, in a different way. So uh, yeah, they're all kind of integrated in you. Yeah, yeah, and so I'm, I'm very grateful for for all those experiences and you know and in some cases you have to be grateful for the trials and tribulations of life because they form who you are part of the reason that i study the things i study is because they're personal to me i've told told you about my uh, personal connection to, to autism the reason i study suicide is that my uh, my grandmother in, in gua who i never got to meet she she committed suicide she basically died of a broken heart. My, oh, my wow. grandfather passed away and she was with her boys for a couple years after that. And, and then she decided one day that that was that. So it's, uh, it, it's something that, that is my way of paying forward. Right. If I, if I can save another life, that that'd be great. Even if it's not me directly, if I, if I can save another life, that that'd be fantastic. So that someone else's grandmother was be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm right there with you uh, as far as like let's let's take that uh, suicide number down all the way to zero if we can. We'll figure out some ways. You do it your way. I'll do it my way, and we'll meet in the middle. All right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's beautiful, man. Um, thank you for sharing some of the amazing things that you're grateful for. With all that gratefulness, then what are you creating? What am I creating? That is a great question. I, I hope I'm creating a great life for my son. I hope that, and I, you know, I do feel that way. I, I do feel that society overall is becoming more accepting of a lot of things. So hopefully I'm creating that. Second thing I, I am trying to create and I'm in a position to do so is to make my discipline economics more accepting of more folks. You know, I'm, I'm a bit of a unicorn in the discipline. Uh, there's to give you an idea, right? Women make up more than half of college students right now, and they make up more than half of medical students, for example, right now. But only a third of economists are, are women. Okay. Much fewer are Hispanics, so somewhere around ten percent. And if I were to tell you the number of Black women who are economists, you could count them on your hand in, in any given year. So it's not a very inclusive place right now. And we need to be more diverse because econ affects everyone, right? I mean, yesterday, the Fed decided not to increase interest rates. That, that affects everyone. It affects who, what home you're going to buy, what car you're going to buy, that, all these things. So we need more people and their experiences in there. And that's the reason I do a lot of these things in the discipline. I'm, I'm about to be the, the co-chair of the Committee on the Status of Minority Groups in the Econ Profession. And, and the whole idea is, is to move forward there with those folks. I'm working with a team on how can we get people from um, who look differently than what you might find in a typical textbook, textbook to appear inside of classrooms and appear inside of these textbooks. How can we put more of those folks forward? Anything to... to make ECOM more representative of the folks that we're studying. 
I mean, that, that, that's the truth. So the whole economy, right? <laughs> yeah. So that, that's what I've been working towards that. That's what I see the, the second half of my career really working towards If If I can lift folks up, then that'd be great. Professionally, whenever someone does a favor for you, you should think of favors as being intergenerational. You don't pay it back to the person who gave you the favor. You pay it yeah. back to the person who's behind you coming up. Right? Yeah, yeah. That that's the the way you should think about favors when when they're professional favors. Yeah. The the person I like that a lot. Does, does, doesn't need you're up. They're already ahead of you, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's a different kind of reciprocity, right? Yeah. All right. What they need you to do is to turn around and do the same for for someone else behind you. You got to be a lifter. Do you even lift, bro? <laughs> that's right. So, so, so that, that's how I see myself right now. Nice. Yeah. That's beautiful. I like that a lot. That's a hell of a thing that you're creating there. I, you know, I'm completely in favor of that. That's beautiful. So with, uh, all your story and with all your intentions and all your gratefulness and all the beautiful things you're creating, that brings us around to our fifth and final question. Everybody's favorite, the identity question. Who are you really Dr. Jose Fernandez? Who am I really? So we started this with how do I sell myself? But if if I were to say who I really was, I tried to present myself this confident person, always low key, always kind of in control. I am a control freak. (laughs) I'm a control freak (laughs) with, with a terrible travel anxiety who's haunted by a future where he isn't there for his sons. I'm a person that can at times be crippled by anxiety if I'm sitting, say, down in the middle of an orchestra or inside of a plane when you are taking off or landing because you can't get up. I'm totally crippled at that point. But if you put me on the stage instead or put me in front of the classroom, I feel completely at home. I feel totally safe there. It is uh, it's a bit of an oxymoron in that sense, but... Uh, a much easier going person when I can express how I'm feeling, how I'm doing, and I'm not when I'm out of control and I have to let the wheel go to <laughs> to someone else. And so that that <laughs> Jesus uh, take the wheel. <laughs> yeah, that is uh, that that that's who I really am. Probably do a good job hiding it, but those who know know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate that level of authenticity and vulnerability in the answers. And I've I've noticed that across the board in the people that get, you know, give this fifth question an answer. Appreciate your answer greatly. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share with the audience? Yes. So I want I want everyone who's listening to remember that the most expensive thing that you own is your time. Most expensive thing you own is your time. I, I teach a class called Law and Economics, and, and every single time I have this class, I ask them a very specific question. I ask the students, hey, how many of you would be happy to receive $10 million today? All right, all the hands go up. They, they all fly up. They're like, yeah, I'll be happy to receive $10 million today. That'd be fantastic. It could change my life. And then I say, okay, what if I told you I would give you $10 million today, right now, but you don't wake up tomorrow? How many of you want those $10 million? And all of a sudden, all the hands fall. And I didn't choose $10 million haphazardly, right? That is the average statistical value of life, at least from the eyes of the government. They're making up population policies or environmental policy. They're using that number. 
I ask them that question because I want them to realize that their time right, is worth more than this $10 million because they're willing to wake up tomorrow. They're willing to do this again. So when you think about how you spend your time, know that that is the one thing that is very hard to replace. You can't get it back once you've used it. And there's no amount of money for some folks that can buy you more of it. There's certain activities that there's no money that's available that can allow you to experience it. So think of your education, think of like if you're a musician, all those hours that you put into being a musician, you can't just buy that. You have to put the work in. You know, we do martial arts, can't get good good at jiu-jitsu if you don't show up on the mats and do jiu-jitsu. It's, uh, there, there's no Matrix Neo effect where you put it in your brain and <laughs> I know jiu-jitsu now, that, that doesn't work. <laughs> Not yet. So, so your time is your most valuable thing. And since it's your most valuable thing, you should be doing what makes you happy and will make you a better person. That's how you should be spending your time. That, that, that's what I want people to remember. That's beautiful. That's some real wisdom being dropped there. And I'm incredibly grateful for the time that you've been willing to give me and the audience. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Still want to see you on the mats, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't give me a pass. Keep uh, keep bugging me. They've got enough classes there. Shout out to uh, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu of Kentucky and Scott Smith and Adam Miller and all the other. There's got to be 10,000 black belts there now. It's like the best school in the world. Just, you know, like I love it there. They're awesome people. I just, my attendance has always been low and I'm doing my best to get back in there again soon. But yeah, they're great people. And I'm really glad that we were able to connect there and to connect today. Thank you for your time, my friend. Thank you, Doc. Doc out.